Well, good morning. It's so good to be back here this week. Uh, happy Father's Day, dads. Yes, it's exciting that we get to celebrate dads today. I know that as I come here, my own dad heart is full. I wasn't here last week because I was in Montana celebrating the wedding of my son. And I was, yeah, thanks. I was given one job. I was supposed to do the welcome and stand next to him so that when he saw his bride coming, he didn't fall apart. That was my job. Mission failed. Like, he fell apart. I fell apart. There was all sorts of rehydration necessary uh, when the wedding was over. But I, I got to say, as a dad, it is a recognition that there's so much joy in being a father. But there's not just joy, is there? There's also responsibility and challenge and frustration. Right? All of those things and more are a part of being dads. And we want you to know, dads, we are praying for you as you take on this high calling that God has given to us as dads, we are praying for you. And I'd like to pray for the dads right now. Would you guys pray with me? Father, so thankful for the fathers in this room. Uh, for those who have kids that are upstairs in the nursery and those who have kids, who have kids, who have kids. Lord, what a, what a blessing. Uh, we're so thankful for the fact that you have entrusted with us the discipleship of these little ones when they are in our home. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be strengthening and empowering the dads in this room. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. Well, I... I missed a week. Where are we? What are we supposed to be talking about this morning? Does anybody know? Yes. Romans, right. That's right. I heard it. Romans. We are in the fourth part of our Romans Road series where we're looking at the last few chapters of the book of Romans. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 13 today. So you can turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Romans 13. And as you're turning there... I just want to remind us of the big picture of what we're looking at. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is all about the gospel and its history. And we believe the gospel as it is outlined in those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, there is this very important hinge word. It's the word, therefore. Because you believe the gospel, therefore, you live like chapters 12 through 16. And chapters 12 through 16 are all about the daily living of God's people who believe the gospel. And we're looking at that over the course of these next few weeks. And part of what we saw a couple of weeks ago is that for those who believe the gospel, they fully submit themselves to God. Right? We believe the gospel, therefore we submit. You remember, we, we saw that we fully submit our bodies as living sacrifices before the Lord. We fully submit our minds to the things of God. We fully submit our talents and our gifts to God and to his kingdom. But we're going to see today that if we believe the gospel and we fully submit to God, that there is more submitting that God calls us to. More submitting that God would have from us in our lives. Now, I've already used the word submit or submission, I don't know, 12 to 15 times this morning. So why don't we pause and just ask the question, 
What is submission? If that's what we're going to be talking about today, submitting and submission, what is it? Well, the Greek word in the New Testament translated submit means to yield or give way. And so this morning we might think about it like this. If I was seated over on this edge of a row and I decided to get up and wanted to exit through this aisle and you were seated on this edge of the same row and got up and you wanted to exit to this aisle, at some point we would meet in those rows. And because the chairs are close enough together, we can't get by each other. So what are we going to do? Right? Somebody is going to have to give way. Somebody's going to have to say, here, you go first, and I'm going to go ahead and follow. And that's the idea behind this New Testament word for submitting. Two people come together, and one says, yep, you go, and I will follow you. And so those who are believing the gospel and are fully submitted to God are people who are submitting in other areas. We see first in this passage that if we believe the gospel and submit to God, therefore we submit to human authorities that God has put in place. Chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The word translated be subject here is the same word translated submit in the New Testament. Everybody be subject or submit to those governing authorities. Every believer is to be in submission to the proper authorities. And what do you notice about those authorities? They've been instituted by God, haven't they? Those authorities have been instituted or established by God. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who has ever been in authority is carrying out the moral will of God. So that as Stalin is killing tens of thousands of his own people, he's going ahead and carrying out God's good plan. That isn't what that means. But what it does mean is that there are certain authorities established or instituted by God to which our general way of relating is submitting to them. Here we're talking about governing authorities. But throughout the scriptures, there are several authorities that God has established. Within marriage, he has established husbands as an authority. And he calls wives to submit to that authority. Within the family, he has established parents as, author- as authorities, and he has called children to obey those authorities. Within the church, he has established overseers, sometimes called elders or pastors, as authorities. And he has called church members to submit, or Hebrews 13, obey those authorities. And within the government, he has established leaders. And passages like Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 call every believer to do what with those authorities? Submit to them, right? Be subject to them. Why has God established these authorities? Well, look at the next set of verses. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What is the purpose of government authority according to these passages, according to these verses? It is to punish the bad and elevate the good. That's the, the purpose that God has established these authorities, to punish the bad and elevate the good so that all of those who are under the authority can experience good. That is God's ultimate design for authority, government authority and every authority that he has put in place, that it exists so that those under the authority would receive what is good and what is from God. Jesus says this is very different than the way that the world looks at authority. In Mark chapter 10, we read, And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, what do they do with their authority? Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus says the traditional way of looking at authority and leadership is to try and get it so that you can get your way. And so that all of those who are under your authority can do things your way and can feed into you. Jesus says God has established authority for a very different purpose than that. So that leaders will get under the people that they are leading. And will lift them, they'll serve them, be slave to them, give their lives for what is good for those people. And so God has established all of these authorities for that purpose, for the good of those who are under the authority. God has established the authority of husbands within marriage so that they will give their lives for the good of their wife. That's why Ephesians 5 says the role of a husband is to die like Christ did for the sake of his bride, to do what is good for her. And if a husband is using that authority for what they want, then they are misusing or abusing that authority. Within family, God has given authority to parents so that they can do what is good for their children. When I had kids growing up in my home, it was so often easier to do whatever my kids wanted. To go along with whatever they wanted and what they wanted and what was good for them, those didn't always match up. Am I right, parents? Right? Absolutely. And what was often easiest was to go along with what they wanted. God has given me responsibility and leadership as a parent in order to do what is good for them and their discipleship. Within the church, no one should ever seek leadership and authority within the church in order to get their way, to get things from the people that they are leading. Instead, leadership within the church is for the purpose of giving your life for those who are under that authority, to give yourself up for their good, which is becoming like Jesus Christ. And God has established government authority to be used for the good of the people under that authority. No one is ever to seek government authority and leadership for their own benefit, for their own good. 
but only so that they can give themselves for the good of those who are under that authority. And because we don't see that as often as we would like, we pray towards that end, don't we? God has established authorities for the good of those who reside under that authority. That's the purpose. Now, it's usually about this time when people begin to think of authorities that they have been around in their life who have been bad leaders, bad authorities, and we begin to ask the question, well, do we always have to submit to the authorities in our life? Or are there exceptions? Well, in fact, as we read through the Scriptures, there is clearly an exception. And that exception is that when human authorities command that we do something different than what God has commanded that we do, we always go with God in that situation. When Darius says to Daniel, there's no more praying, Daniel continues to pray because he's going to go with God. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told, you bow down to the golden statue, they say, no, we will not. And if we die, oh well, because we're going to go with God. When the Hebrew midwives are told to murder the babies of the people of Israel, they're like, no, God doesn't want us doing that. And we're going with God's commands, not yours, Pharaoh. When the apostles are told, don't preach about Jesus, their response is, but Jesus told us to preach about him, and so we're not going to listen to you. Right? So they called them and charged them, this is the Jewish leaders, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We're going with God on this. And any time that there is a contradiction between what God has commanded us and what human authorities command us, whichever kind of human authority we're talking about, we go with God in that situation. Each and every time, no matter the consequences. Right? No matter the consequences. That is the exception, however. And Romans chapter 13 is dealing with the rule. That as a rule, we are to be a people who are subject to God and therefore subject to the human authorities that he's put in place in our lives. Therefore, one must be in subjection, our same word for submit, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to, the, to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. For the sake, it says, of avoiding God's external punishment, an internal crisis of conscience, submit to the human authorities that have been put in place. Right? Submit to them. This means following governmental rule, as it says here, including paying your taxes. If I were in charge, would the tax code look different than it does now? Yes. And when I vote, do I have an opportunity to try and change that? Sure. But as long as this is the law, what do I do? Right? I pay my taxes. I am subject to the authorities and I'm obedient to Jesus' command when it comes to these things. Because 
We are called to be disobedient to human authorities when they contradict what God has said. But we are not called to be disobedient to human authorities because I don't like what they said. That's very different. Or because I don't agree with what they said. Instead, we're called to submit. And this is very important. Submission only applies when we want something different than that authority. Let me say that again. Submission only applies by definition when we want something different than that authority. If I get up on this end of the row and you get up on this end of the row and we both want to go out to this aisle, nobody needs to submit. We want the same thing. When my kids were young and they wanted to go outside and play and I wanted them to go outside and play, no need to submit. We want the same thing. But when they wanted to go outside and play and I wanted them to go in and clean their room, well, now submission is necessary because we want different things. Submission only applies when we want something different than the authority. This is so essential because often the attitude in this day and age is, I will submit when they make decisions that I like. I will submit when I agree with what they do. That, that's not submission. If I, if I like it, if, if I agree with it, then there's no submission necessary. Submission is only necessary when we're going in different directions. And so we recognize that that's not our attitude. Our attitude is one of genuine submission. Not submission when I feel like it. Not submission when I like what you've said. This is such an important principle for Christians because submission is the opposite of me, me, me. Submission is the opposite of selfishness. Submission is the opposite of pride. I'm going to get my way. And so when we submit, our heart and our character are formed more and more into what Christ wants them to be. Submission is a practice that forms our heart and our character. And it is of the utmost importance because of what I've called the rule of reflection. Right? What, what is the rule of reflection? It is the fact that everything that is true in my relationship with God ultimately should be reflected in my relationship with people. So in 1 John, we read that if we truly love God, what will be true in our relationships with people? Right? We'll, we'll love people. And in Matthew 18 and James chapter 2, we're told that if we've genuinely experienced the forgiveness and mercy of God, what will our attitude be towards other people? One of forgiveness and mercy. And if we've experienced the generosity of God and we want to be generous towards God, how does the Bible say we do that? By being generous with people. And on and on I could go. Right? The, the rule of reflection. Those things that are true in our relationship with God should be worked out in our relationships with people. And so... If we're unwilling to submit to human authorities, if we have a hard heart towards human authorities, what does that say about how we have submitted to God or whether we have submitted to God? It's so important because our submission to Jesus and our submission to these authorities go hand in hand and one speaks to the other. Our submission to human authorities is connected to our submission to God, and so naturally, it is under attack in our world. 
right? The idea of submission is under attack in all of the areas that God has established. So within marriage, submission is under attack. Where husbands are abusive of authority, where husbands misuse authority in order to get their own way rather than do what is good for their wife, where wives refuse to acknowledge that there's any authority within their husband or that there's any distinction in role. Submission is under attack in the family where parents are told, eh, you, don't, you don't need to discipline your kid when they disobey. You don't need to discipline your kid when they act in selfish ways. That's just their personality coming out. Just redirect them. Uh, just turn their attention someplace else. I would contend that from the time we are born, we are either building patterns of submission or patterns of pride in our life. And if as parents, we are not training and disciplining kids so that there are patterns of submission when it comes to human authorities, then we are decreasing the chance that they will ever get on their knees and genuinely submit to Jesus Christ. Right? God has called us to have kids who are obedient because it increases the opportunity that they will be obedient to Jesus throughout their lives. We see submission under attack within the church. It's under attack through church authorities who misuse those positions of leadership and use it for themselves and their own benefit and their own glory. It's under attack through consumerism within the church, which actually takes the idea of submitting authority and turns it around 180 degrees and says, well, as long as the leadership of this church does things my way, I won't complain. Well, as long as the leadership of this church does things my way, I won't leave to go to a different church. And that kind of consumerism is the opposite of submission to authority within the church. And of course, submission to authority is under attack with government leaders. Now before I go into this, let me, let me first just say, the further and further that the decisions of government leaders get from the proclamations of God the more often it will be that those who follow after Jesus Christ will have to say, no, I'm going with God, not this government decision, no matter what the consequences, right? But I would also say that the general teaching of Scripture is that we are to be submitted to government authorities when they are not contradicting God, that we are to be subject to them, and so they make decisions that I don't like. Who cares? I don't like the speed limit on this particular road. I, I don't like this law about seatbelts. I don't like my tax number. None of that matters, right? God's call on us is to submit in those situations. Submitting, and as 1 Peter 2 talks about, honoring our leaders also means praying for them, praying for their salvation day in and day out. It does not mean posting nasty cartoons about them because I don't agree with them, Amen. right? Uh, it seems extremely difficult for me to genuinely be on my knees for government leaders that I disagree with and for their salvation and for righteousness and at the same time be posting cartoons that mock them and ridicule them. Those things seem difficult. Out of the same mouth, right, both should not come, James says. As followers of Jesus, 
we are fully submitted to him. And part of what that means is that we are fully submitted to the human authorities that he's put in place in our lives. But there's an even greater submission talked about in this passage in Romans 13. Uh, and that is the submission to the law of love. Because we believe the gospel, because we're fully submitted to God, yes, we are in full submission to our human authorities that God's put in place. But even more than that, we are in submission to the law of love because God is love. That's right. God is love. L look at this next verse, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. If you look back at verse 7, it says, pay what you owe. You owe this, pay it. You owe this, pay it. You owe this, pay it. And then in verse 8, he says, but there is one debt that you will never be able to pay off. You will always owe it. And what is that debt? It's the debt of love. The debt of loving God and loving others. And why will we always owe that debt? Because God's call is for us to love like him. How does God love? Infinitely. Perfectly. How much love do I have to show to get there? It's not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, we read, This is love, not that we've loved God, but that he's loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love, infinite and perfect towards us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love the way God has loved, perfectly, infinitely, no big deal. Right? That's the debt. Do we ever pay that debt? No, we constantly owe more and more love. It's like God's love shown to us is the Pacific Ocean. 87 quintillion gallons of water. I don't even know what that number means, by the way. It's a lot of water. And then the love that I show to you is a teaspoon here, a tablespoon there. Maybe occasionally I get up to the, the one cup measuring cup of love. How many teaspoons do I have to show of love before I've equaled the Pacific Ocean? Right? I'm not getting there in this life. Can we all agree to that? Now, that teaspoon of love, that tablespoon, that's great. I'm not belittling that. That is great. That's God's call in our life. But, but it's never going to equal the Pacific Ocean of love that God has poured out on me. And so I always owe love because I've been called to love like God. I get up tomorrow and I love my life, my wife, my life, yeah, that too. I love my wife well by bringing her a coffee at 6.30. I'm done for the day, right? Debt of love paid. I'm out. Burn the mortgage of love. Right? No, that's not the way that debt works. If I love her well at 6.30, at 6.31... I owe her more love. At 6.32, I owe more love. At 6.33, I owe more love. I'm not going to keep going. Right? You get the idea. We're constantly paying love because it is what the kingdom is all about. Now, how do we love like that? Look at the next set of verses. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. How do we love each other? By being obedient to the teachings of God. 
And what are the teachings of God about? They're about how we love. Right? Do you see this? Some people have a, an incorrect understanding of God's teaching and commandments where they believe that there is this long laundry list of random commandments that God has given to us and love happens to be one of those commandments. But what Jesus teaches us is love is all the commandments. Loving God and loving people is what it's all about and all of the other commandments simply help teach us how to do that. That's precisely what he says in Matthew chapter 22 when he is talking about the great commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is where I want you to pay attention. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? That Greek word for depend is a word that was used to hang something from something. So, so to hang clothes from a hanger or from a hook. Or it was also used of flesh hanging from the bone. And that's really a good picture here. Love God and love people, that is the skeleton of what God calls us to. Everything else that God teaches simply fleshes that out. So if I want to know how to love God... I look to what he has commanded and his teaching. Now, you might be asking, well, wait a minute. If ultimately everything comes down to love God and love others, why did God feel the need to say more? Wouldn't it just be simpler and shorter to say, hey, love God and love others? Yes, but, but I think here's the problem. Without any further definition, I will take the concept of love and I will mold it to my broken desires. Right? Do we see any of that out in the world? Without any further definition, I will take the concept of love and I will mold it to my broken desires and wishes. And so that that doesn't happen, God has given us his teaching so that we understand love, not according to our desires, but according to his character. And according to his teachings. So if I want to know how to love God, I look at the commandments. And I know he's got to be first place in my daily priorities. Have no other God above me. I know that loving him looks like committing significant time to being with him and holding to that time. Keep, keep a Sabbath. I know from the, uh, from the sacrificial system, that loving God looks like giving to God of what is most valuable of mine. And that that is an expression of my love for Him. I want to know how to love people. What do I look at? The teachings of God. Hey, stop lying to each other if you want to love each other well. And tell the truth. Hey, hey stop stealing from each other. And instead, as Ephesians 4.28 says, work so that you may have something to give to those who are in need. Within your marriages, don't commit adultery. Instead, honor each other. Instead, care for each other. And so the teachings of God are teaching us how do we love each other in all of these different situations within our life. As believers, there's nothing more important to us. We believe the gospel, we are submitted to God, so we are submitted to the law of love. And we practice Jesus' teachings towards each other. Finally, in the last couple of verses, we recognize we believe the gospel. We submit to God. Therefore, we submit to righteousness in our life. 
Uh, verse 11 says, Besides this, you know that the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand. No matter who you are, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, the day of your ultimate salvation is closer now than when you first believed. Whether, whether through death or his return, the day that you stand before the Lord is closer now than the day that you first believed. And with that proximity, how do we then live? Well, the next verse he says, So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. The word here for cast off is a word used to disrobe or take off your clothes. Take off the clothes of sin and evil. And here he gives us a little sample list of sin. It's a very short list. You want a longer list? Look back at Romans chapter 1. He gives a much longer list with 32 items in Romans chapter 1. But here he's given us just a short little list. And within that list, we see chemical abuse, right? Drunkenness. Don't seek pleasure or the dulling of your pain through chemicals. On this list, we see sexual sin. Don't seek pleasure or the dulling of your pain through sexual sin, whether that's looking at images, whether that is sex outside of marriage the way that God intended. Don't do that. Look to Him for fulfillment in life. Uh, don't participate in a selfish focus in life. He talks, here, uh, he talks here about quarreling and jealousy. What is jealousy? You have something. I think I should have it. I want is the center of jealousy. He talks about quarreling, or some of your translations have divisiveness. What's at the center of quarreling and divisiveness? I have a way I see things, and I want my way. Isn't that what James 4 says is at the center of quarreling? You have, right? You have not, and you desire, and therefore you quarrel and you fight. What is ultimately at the center of jealousy and quarreling? It's a great big bucket of I. I want what you have. I want my way. And here God says, no, take those clothes off. That doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. That's not fitting for my people. But simply disrobing of evil is never the full answer. You cannot, through willpower, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, be free of the things that God has called you to be free of and be transformed. Instead, we have to put something on. Otherwise, we're just naked and cold. What do we put on? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on is a word for getting dressed, for robing oneself. Dress yourself in Christ and the things of Christ. Uh, just, just wondering, how many of you got dressed accidentally today? Right? Just happened. Right? Now, don't look around and judge the people around you. All right? You were just walking around the house this morning and a shirt flew on. Or you were sitting at a table and suddenly socks just worked their way up. That's not how getting dressed works, is it? It doesn't just happen as we're wandering around. 
When you get dressed, no, no matter how it may look, when you get dressed, it's intentional. You intentionally put on a shirt. You intentionally put on pants, right? It's intentional. And the same is true with getting dressed in Christ. It's intentional, right? Daily, we have to intentionally get dressed in Jesus Christ. It doesn't just happen. Uh, you can't live your life the way the world lives life. Watching what the world watches, listening to what the world listens to, right? Participating in what the world participates in, vacationing where the world vacates, whatever it is. You can't just live your life like the world and then expect that Christ-likeness is just going to fly on you. That's not the way that getting dressed in Christ Jesus works. It's intentional, right? It's, it's regular. And so we go back to Romans 12, right? Where we seek the renewal of our minds for the transformation of our life, where we are regularly filling our minds and our hearts with the things of Jesus. If we're going to see that transformation take place in us, we take off the old clothes of sin and we regularly and intentionally put on the new clothes of Jesus Christ and the life that he has called us to. I want us to take a couple of minutes and just do that right now. Uh, and so if you would, would you guys bow your heads with me? We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute, but I want us to prepare our hearts and our minds uh, by, by taking off the old clothes of sin and intentionally putting on the clothes of Christ this morning. Let's start through confession. Is there any confession that you need to make about a lack of willingness to submit to God or to human authorities? Spend time confessing that now. Are there ways as you look at your life where you can see selfishness and pride have driven your decisions rather than the law of love? Confess that now. Are there any ways in which you have been living in the old clothes of sin, selfishness? Confess and cast off those clothes now. Our heart of submission, chapters 12 through 16, comes out of our full belief and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we go to the table, that's our focus. If you're anything like me, as we spend time confessing, there's a lot to confess. And now I would invite you to spend time giving God praise and thanksgiving for the sending of His Son to take the punishment that you deserved and to take your sins upon himself so that his righteousness might be credited to us. Spend time thanking God for his grace and his mercy.
Spend time putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done in your life. Giving him praise, giving him thanks. Asking for his strength and power for righteousness and love. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go to the communion table today, we recognize that forgiveness of our sins and the strength to live like Jesus are only possible because of what he has done on our behalf. Not, not anything we've done, but what he has done. And we celebrate that at the table. Today we're going to do the Lord's Supper a little differently. Normally you go to the tables and you bring the elements back to your seats and I lead us in taking those elements all together. Today there's going to be three or four songs that play and as we spend time exalting God and worshiping Him in His holiness, when your heart is ready, I'd invite you to go to one of those tables and take those elements when you're ready. Right, so you're going to take those when, when your heart and mind are ready today. Let's spend some time honoring the Lord in song. Spend some time honoring the Lord around this table. Father, we're so grateful for your goodness and your power and your strength and your forgiveness. And we want to praise your name mightily right now. In Jesus' name, amen.